0: Wait, pause. It's not a statue like of her person. Does that change how you're answering this question? Yeah. What the (laughs) freak? What is it a statue of? It's a sculpture, like as a monument to her. It's like artistic. Delete this whole thing. Hello, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is Places We've Called Home. That means we're sharing stories of ladies who are from or lived anywhere that we have lived for any period of time or considered a home. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Jacoba Mulder, a Dutch architect and urban planner. I'm Lizzie Rar, craving some banquette or amandelstaff in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica
1: and Nergitti. I'm Nergieri Rivas, South Side Sue Broadja in Houston, Texas.
2: (laughs) 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 And I'm Jessica Rogers, wishing I had some stroop waffles with my coffee based out of Miami, Florida. (laughs) That (laughs) sounds great. Good stuff.
1: It's time for our disclaimer. The three of us are passionate about what we're doing, but we are not experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the women and the information that we find. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. Okay, ladies. Today, we're going back to Europe, specifically
0: Nederland. So before we talk about Jacoba, I will tell you why I have chosen her. All right. Are you ready? Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. OK, so after we graduated from Syracuse, I got an internship at a firm in The Hague in the Netherlands, and I lived in the Marlot area of Den Haag for three and a half months. I really loved living in the Netherlands and I loved all the biking, the trains, the style of the homes and the buildings and the stroopwafels, the croquette, all the things. Mm. Just loved it all.
1: I was in the Netherlands with you for three days and I really enjoyed it. So I can see why you liked it too. And we got to celebrate Queens Day, which is a big national holiday. It should be on mm-hmm. everyone's bucket list, even though it's called King's Day now. But the architecture and the pedestrian friendly city design are huge draws for me. I can't wait to visit again. I'm really excited to learn more about Jacoba.
2: Yes, and Lizzie, that internship sounded so exciting and so cool. So I'm excited that we're going international again and we're gonna talk about Nar Nederland. However you said it. <laughs> about Nederland? Nederland. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard of it that way. But I mean that's that's,
0: that's how saying, you say it in, in Dutch. Its yeah.
1: Natural language. <laughs> yeah. hmm
0: Well, another reason that I'm excited to talk about another Dutch lady is that my family roots are in the Netherlands on my dad's side. His grandparents were all born in the Netherlands and emigrated to the U.S. when they were kids in the early 20th century. So you might have caught in episode 73 that I grew up in Holland, Michigan. So... Needless to say, there's a lot of Dutchies over in West Michigan. So I still have some distant family in the Netherlands that Nergidi and I stayed with when we were studying in Florence. That's the three days she mentioned.
1: Right, right. That was the three days in the Netherlands that I was talking about. (laughs) Shout out to the freeze that thought it was hilarious that I didn't eat soft boiled eggs on a little egg stand thing that they had. Do you remember that, Lizzie? What was the name of that little stand? (laughs) It's called an egg cup. I think
0: you hadn't had a soft boiled egg before or like eaten it plain like that because no. you have to put it, it's too soft in the middle. So you have to have like a little cup to hold it so that you can like, you know, eat the runny yolk.
1: Jessica looks anyway. as confused as me, right? Well, we I don't eat eggs in general. I think I I've seen that. Well, true, true. <laughs> I've never seen that until I was there.
0: Yeah. But it's very common there. And I think in Germany too. But. Mm-hmm. no lessons learned anyway <laughs> welcome in breda nederland jacoba Mulder was born on march 2nd 1900 fun fact i've actually been to breda not for very long but i did set foot in the city <laughs> <laughs> so breda is in the southern part of the netherlands near the border with belgium between rotterdam and antwerp cool what were you up to there I was there taking pictures of a building for my job. Nothing super exciting, but.
1: Okay, cool. Still cool. Yeah, you were there. You were <laughs> <Not> there. <yet. laughs> Just the whole thing. Yeah. She's so modest. It's like, oh. Uh,
2: well, Just you know. working.
0: <laughs> so most people called Yakuba Co. So we'll use the two names interchangeably in the episode. Her parents were Hendrik Mulder, an infantry officer, and Sara Marie Bon. So we talked about Breda, but even though Ko was born there, her family soon moved to Semarang, Indonesia, on the island of Java.
1: Oh, well, that was quick. We've been traveling on this episode. Yep. Uh, And it's interesting. Like, what would bring them to Indonesia?
0: Right. So her dad was an officer in the Royal Dutch East Indies Army. So they were stationed in Indonesia, which at that time was a colony of the Netherlands. Semarang is in central Java, and it's not too far from Borobudur Temple, which you ladies might remember from architectural history class? Question mark.
1: Mm, It looks familiar, but I don't remember it too much. It is stunning, though. I'd go visit if I live close to it. I hope that Cole got to go. Oh, yes.
2: I forgot that I was in Indonesia, but I do recall this building um, or this temple because it's considered to be the world's largest Buddhist monument. And like you said, this building, it's impressive. It's stunning. It's huge.
0: Yeah, it's definitely something that's always been on my bucket list since we learned about it in school. Mm -hmm. So and the temple apparently made a big impression on Ko as a child. So sadly, though, Ko got malaria a lot as a kid. So when she was 13, she and her younger sister went back to the Netherlands and her parents stayed in Indonesia and eventually they separated.
1: Um, what just happened? Okay, wait, let's take this by parts. This is going to be really ignorant, but I didn't know that you could get malaria more than once. I thought that it was one of those things that either kill you or you build immunity to it. Like a more lethal chicken pox or something like that. <laughs> but I'm guessing now that I'm thinking about it, it's it comes from getting mosquito bites, right? Yeah. So it's more like dengue. Okay, I get it now.
2: I mean, I'm sure it happens more than once, but I don't think I've heard of people getting it multiple times. Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen, it's definitely treatable and it can be lethal if it's untreated.
1: Mm. So, okay, that makes sense. So she just had bad luck
2: a little yeah. bit. She also has mosquito blood. Like, I get mosquito bites all the time. Luckily, I live mm-hmm. in an area where I wouldn't <laughs> get malaria, but...
1: But then the kids left without the parents? Like, who mm-hmm. did they stay with? And the parents separated? I just feel like a lot of things happened. Yeah. Lizzie, I, that was a lot. That was a lot. And that
2: was the part that confused me and was sad. Like where like Lizzie where did her and her sister stay like because their parents weren't right. with them I know I know so at
0: first Co and her sister they went to live with family in Lada, which Nardjiri is one town over from Bussum
1: <gasps> OMG Bussum such a fun name <laughs> to say but <laughs> you know what's more fun Nardum Bussum <laughs> I loved getting on the train and going to Nardom Bussum. It's real close to Amsterdam, too. Just a little train ride away.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. When Co was in high school, she went to live on her own with, quote, private individuals in Assa, which is way in the north in Drenth. I assumed that she was going to a school up there. And didn't find specific information on which one. But I wonder if private individuals means like she boarded with a local family that lived close to the school or they provided housing for the students.
1: It was unclear. That sounds real sketchy, Lizzie. Mm -hmm. I (laughs) wonder if something got lost in translation. Like, were you Googling translating this? I don't remember. I just private individuals. Like, I wonder how that
2: would fly with my mama. they would be like private individuals, <laughs> private individuals. Well,
0: but, uh, <laughs> but that's why I think it's it's got to be something about the translation.
2: <laughs> Probably. Hopefully that's what it is. But it does remind me of like, OK, I was watching this movie and this girl goes to a private school and there's benefactors of the school that have these huge mansions and they would like offer housing for students. So it was kind of like a boarding house. Right. So maybe so private individuals means to me that maybe they could have been like very important and rich, that they didn't want their business out there. They just wanted to help.
0: Or yeah. Or like how it was in. Florence, for us, right? That like yeah. families offered to have people stay with them and they got like a stipend for providing uh, housing for someone at the school nearby. That's like, that's kind of what I thought mm-hmm. maybe it meant. Yeah. But, but it still sounds sketchy. <laughs> yeah. But it's a weird phrasing, <laughs> which I think, yeah, probably a translation issue. Mm-hmm. In 1918, when Co is 18, she graduates high school and decides that she wants to study architecture at Technische Hochschule Delft. The Technical College of Delft. Today, it is Technische Universiteit Delft, or Delft University of Technology, also called TU Delft.
1: Oh, TU Delft! That is a great school in the Netherlands. And not just the Netherlands, it's renowned all through Europe.
2: Yes, it's really impressive. And like Najdi said, this school, it's one of the greats in the world to this day.
0: Yes. I think we've talked before about how I thought about doing structural engineering for a master's degree after college. And I actually looked into TU Delft. Uh, I didn't pursue anything, but I was like intrigued with the idea of like, what if I go to Europe and study structural engineering?
1: That would have been interesting. It's never too late, Lizzie. Yes. You never know. You never know. You still have a shot. I know
2: that <sighs> I mean, you've definitely mentioned studying structural engineering. Uh, if you were to get your master's, because we've definitely talked about it. Yeah, yeah. But you, I mean, TU Delft, that would be cool too. go back to your roots. I know.
0: <laughs> well, Ko was one of the first ladies to attend TU Delft. I did not find out like what number she was, but definitely one of the first. I'm also a bit confused on the exact degree she got. Most say she went there to study architecture, but a few places say she graduated with a civil engineering degree and some say urban design degree. One says she got a civil engineering degree with a specialization in urban design, which apparently was a new program at TU Delft. All that is to say she was an early woman in the school and this area of study, and she graduated in 1926.
1: Okay, congratulations, (laughs) Coe, for your degree on something and your achievement on being a pioneer at that something. Good job. (laughs) I mean, it's still amazing, though. It is. Yeah.
2: Even if we don't know what it is exactly.
1: Right, right. I mean, it was
0: engineering or architecture, but like it's they're all kind of, you know, in the in the same vein. So that same year she graduated she won a competition for the design of a fire station. The competition was put on by the Vereniging Baukunst and Vriendschap in Rotterdam, which literally translates to the Association of Architecture and Friendship.
1: Oh, that's great. Winning competitions, putting her name on the map. And what a great name for an association. Sounds super cute. I join. Right? Yeah. It's also really cool that it's a fire station, like of all things.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, she submitted her design anonymously or under like just her last name. And they said the winning design had a, quote, masculine toughness to it. (laughs)
2: Little did they know. Ah! (laughs) This is excellent. I love that Ko is like beating the system. Oh, yeah. I wonder what the look on their faces were when they found out that the designer of this masculine toughness was a woman.
0: <laughs> That's right. No. I know. That's I wish birth. I could have seen the faces. <laughs> <laughs> she did have a tough time finding work, though, and apparently one of the jobs turned her down because, quote, it is difficult for women to be
1: sent out onto the scaffolding. <sighs> Man, these ridiculous hurdles they come up with, like seriously,
2: right? like seriously, like seriously, like for real. Like, how is it difficult for a woman? Like, uh, how? How? Like, I, it, her skirts might get caught up in them. You know, I get. I don't know. It's just, and why? It's ridiculous. Like, it's ridiculous. And I know that we've heard countless excuses that men have come up with so that women wouldn't practice, but it's still so frustrating.
0: Like, why? I know she did eventually get a job at Herzen and Wegeriff architectural firm in The Hague as a draftsperson. But then in 1928, she got a job at the city of Delft. Hmm. She was hired as an adjunct engineer for the South Holland West Regional Development Plan.
2: Okay, so now I'm wondering that co graduated with either multiple degrees or maybe an architecture degree with a concentration in engineering or like vice versa because how do you go from being a drafts person of an architecture firm to an adjunct engineer but anyway the project sounds big and sustainable like i'm just happy she got work to be honest with you
0: yeah i mean the title is engineer but i think she's working on urban plan stuff
2: ah uh. Okay. So
0: I think that goes back to like the urban design specialization that she uh-huh. did in college. Yeah. Well, she worked there for a few years, helping with this expansion project. And then in 1930, she applied to work at the city of Amsterdam's new Stadsontwikkeling or Urban Development Department. This is a brand new department within the city's public works department.
1: I like this urban planning route that she's been taking. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So since
0: she had experience working in Delft, she got the job. She was one of the few people who had experience in urban planning. And to top it off, she quickly moved up to be the second in command at the department under Cornelius Van Eistere.
2: Ooh, that's very cool. Okay, so let's talk about Cornelius a little bit. Or how do you say Cornelius? I don't know. Cornelius. (laughs) Cornelius. So he served as president of CIAM. The Congrès International de Architecture Moderne, which listeners, you might recognize this whenever we've mentioned Corbusier, because he's, he's always been like the more well-known member of CI, of CM. Um, I think Charlotte Perriand, episode 42 was a part of it, and I know that we've talked about it then. But, uh, well, makes Cornelius, I'm going to picture this man's name, Cornel, Cornelius. What makes him cool is that he is actually one of the founders of the the Stiel movement, a favorite of ours that we've talked about. Yes. But he is also most known for his urban planning. So it's actually kind of cool that Ko is like second in command and works so closely um, with this guy.
0: I'm so impressed. Yeah, so he's very well known for doing kind of this urban planning expansion of Amsterdam. But you will soon see that Co is very much part of that. So okay. when we're talking about Cornelius, we're also and Amsterdam, we're talking about Co. So,
3: bam! Hey, designers and curious minds, ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone.
1: Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon? You know, we've
3: got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much, and I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good, and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you.
2: Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project.
3: Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.
0: So at first, she's an associate and worked with van Esteren and Theodor K. van Lohausen on the general expansion plan or AUP for the city. So that was the expansion plan for Amsterdam that Cornelius had come up with. The two men were working on the urban expansion outlines of the project and Coe would elaborate the designs. Ko had 30 draftsmen working under her, all men. And here's a translated quote from someone who interviewed her. She had no problem with that herself. She immediately introduced herself and never tutored. Just be an expert. Then you will automatically get respect was her conviction. Like a boss. <laughs>
2: Uh this is like the boss way of saying fake it till you make it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it though.
0: <laughs> so one of the biggest items in this AUP that Jacoba is credited with is Het Amsterdamse bos or the Amsterdam Forest. So the park is 2,500 acres, which for reference is about three times larger than Central Park in New York City. It's located both in Amstelveen and Amsterdam, but it's owned by the city of Amsterdam. Oh
1: my gosh, that's huge.
2: No, like really huge though.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. So the history of the park is that back in 1900, the Dutch biologist, Dr. J.P. Taysa, wanted to create a green space for the city because they were lacking in those. He was working on the Public Works Committee, and finally, in 1928, the city decided to move forward on this project. Also, in 1930, we're right at the start of the Great Depression, so unemployment is very high in the Netherlands. In Amsterdam, they estimated that 55,000 people were unemployed at this time. They decided to use the construction of this new park as a work relief program. And it's estimated that between 1934 and 1940, the project provided work for more than 20,000 unemployed citizens.
1: I often forget that the Great Depression affected countries in Europe as much as it did the United States. But it's interesting and nice to hear the good Jacoba's work did and for so many years to society overall, not just creating important spaces for the future, but even in the immediate present, creating jobs and helping so many families. Like how impactful is that?
2: Yes, for sure. So Co is
1: leading the design of this park and she
0: decides to use English gardens as her inspiration instead of the more manicured European gardens. She worked with a formula of one-third forest, one-third open space, and one-third water. The result is a more natural-looking park with areas that are also more functional for recreation, sports, and play.
1: I'm liking this formula. I can't wait to plan our Netherlands Art Venture and play in these parks. Yes! I also like this Distinction between the English
2: gardens versus the other like manicured European gardens. I need to see photos.
0: Yes. So working on the boss plan gained her notoriety with the people of the city and she became known as the Lady of the Forest.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the what? I'm not sure how I feel about that nickname. Is that a compliment? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess <laughs> it was like so? a loving
1: nickname that they were like oh she's the lady of the forest because she mean, like designed the park sounds mystical I guess lady is respectful but my first thought was Kaya from where the crawdads sing being called marsh girl and how that was not oh. a compliment at all <laughs> well
2: no. it's not well lady of the forest is better than Beatrix Ferran's nickname when they called her Bushwoman.
3: yes exactly <laughs> <laughs>
1: totally erased that from my memory. That's hilarious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And of course, like I'm translating it from Dutch, right? So it's like Dama. That's uh, the lady. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, she classy. She a the, lady. Or it could be, I, I guess you could maybe translate it as the woman of the forest, but so. But still, anyway.
2: Okay. Yeah. Better than Bushwoman.
0: The project was started in 1930 and it was originally set to be finished in 1948, but World War II had other plans. So. It did eventually get finished, but the last tree was not planted until 1970.
2: I mean, it makes sense, especially considering that there was a whole war going on, but also just the size of the park. It was going to take time. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. In 1936, she
0: started working on her next park design, Beatrix Park. The AUP had planned for a new park in Amsterdam Saud, or South Amsterdam, called Park Saud. She used a similar design strategy and created a mix of water features and open spaces. When the park was completed in 1938, it was named Beatrix Park after the newly born Princess Beatrix, who was the queen when we went to Queen's Day in Oh,
1: that's so lovely and how it's all coming together. We're so connected. It's really cute. In 2018, artists Liet Heringa and Martin
0: von Keelsbek created a sculpture as a monument to Co., which sits in Beatrix Park. It's called Future Past Glory.
1: What? We need to have pictures of that on our show notes. I mm-hmm. love hearing about this. Women's sculptures, but also can we get a statue? Did you know? That statistically, there are far fewer statues of real women, not mermaids or goddesses. I'm talking statues commemorating real women that lived on planet Earth. (sighs) Those are real scarce. For example, in the United States, there's less than 10% statues commemorating women. So this is my PSA. Here's to hoping that number grows and that there are statues of us made one day for our great contributions <laughs> for the future generations to learn about us. hashtag Modest surgery. hashtag I want a statue. <laughs> okay, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs>
2: I think no, I would say maybe like a like a plaque or something, or I, I don't know about no, my, we need
1: statues, Jessica. Sure. I just, I guess, um, seems-
2: <laughs> but out of the 10 percent of statues in the U.S., we do know of one of our ladies, Frances Perkins. She is in front of the building of labor secretary because she was the cabinet member in D.C. So it's still cool, though, that they're honoring Co, even if it's not of a face. It's all representative, I guess. But I don't know, no, Judy. I don't know if I'd want a statue of myself somewhere. <laughs>
1: Okay, fine. We don't need statues of us, but we need more ladies, more women's statues. Yes. It doesn't have to be us, but of
0: others. <laughs> I agree with that. Okay, so World War II happens, which puts a stop to most of the work that Cole and Cornelius are doing. So our story picks up after World War II during the Netherlands Reconstruction era. We've been talking a lot about the AUP, Right. But Mm -hmm. most of it wasn't truly implemented until after World War II, because Uh that put a wrench in their plans. Right. That makes sense also because lots of people are returning after the war. Right. A lot of the city had been destroyed and there was a big baby boom on the rise. Right. Mm. Yeah. So there's a need for a lot of buildings and an increase in housing. Amsterdam would essentially double in size during this time under the AUP.
2: Oh, yes. OK, so we've mentioned this before when we've talked about the Eames and how that kind of brought about the case study houses or even talking about Florence um, the rise in housing after the war back in the States. So I can only imagine that it was more of a necessity in Europe.
0: Yeah. So places like Slotermier, Roosevelt, Slotervart. Over Thomse, Veld, and Oostorp all started out on Co's desk with her team. And those are all a- neighborhoods in Amsterdam. So originally in Van Esteren's master plan for the city expansion, he had planned for strip housing on parallel blocks. And they had implemented this in Boston lomer before the war. After the war, they're working on the plan for Frankendal for the Frankendal neighborhood in the south of the city. And it was originally planned in this same way as bossen Loma strip housing. However, the method was thought to be monotonous after seeing it built in Bossen-Lalmer. Actually, CM kind of made comments about it. Mm. And so Jacoba was put in charge of redesigning the plan And she created an L-shaped arrangement of these housing blocks so that it created a courtyard between the apartment buildings. This way, it brought more light into the units and allowed for more green space in between them. How smart. Mm -hmm. So this new plan was called the Frankendal Plan, and it was implemented in most of the westward expansion in Amsterdam. It's actually really cool because if you go on Google Maps and look at a lot of those neighborhoods that I mentioned, you can actually see that they're L shaped like you can see it from the street configuration and that kind of thing. You'll see blocks of these
2: little L shapes
1: Mm -hmm. on my way to Google Maps to check this out right now. Mm
2: -hmm. I think I've seen it before. This is cool.
1: Yeah. One of the other reasons that
0: the Frankendall plan was great in Co's mind was that sheep would put a playground in each of the courtyards and then mothers could watch their kids from the kitchen window. Co had a huge heart for playgrounds, which brings us to the next part of our story.
1: Next part? There's more than one part? Indeed. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: Part two. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day in 1947, Ko was heading to work from her apartment in Plain, And she said, I saw this girl from the neighborhood busy with a shovel digging near a tree. Nice sand came up. She used it for baking tarts with. But then, alas, a dog came by and did his duty. And that was the end of that.
2: Ew. For a second, I thought this was going to be like this aspirational story about like creativity and stuff this little girl like <laughs> who took a turn <laughs> took a brown well, turn but,
0: well that's sort of the point though yeah so yeah Ko is like this girl needs a good place to play right so she goes into the office that same day and she says that they need to start creating playgrounds in the city and that quote things are different for children from 10 and above they need more space Again, remember, this is right after World War II, so babies are booming. Kids are all over the city. And in 1947, there are fewer than 30 playgrounds in the city of Amsterdam.
1: Oh, yeah. Them baby boomers need a place to play. And a place that is safe
2: without dog Mm -hmm. stuff.
1: So (laughs) that day, Aldo van
0: Eyck happened to be in the office when Co came in with this idea and he volunteered to design it. So this is how the playground at... Plein
2: was born. Oh, man, this is awesome. OK, so Aldo van Eyck was a Dutch architect. Listeners, if you've ever looked at structuralist architecture, you most likely would have seen his work because that's what he's best known for um, in terms of architecture. His work literally looks like Lego blocks, like together. <laughs> it's really funny. Cool to look at. And it also makes sense that Jacqua and Aldo would want to work together because Aldo was interested in creating places that brought in community life for children. So it's I see the connection. It seems like it'll be a good partnership.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, Aldo van Eyck, we think of him with playground design a lot of times. Yeah. And part of that is started because of this, because of Jacoba, right? Mm-hmm. So That's so cool. the cool thing was that after this playground was built, a neighbor saw it and wrote to the public works department saying, hey, can we have a playground a few blocks over here? Mm-hmm. So they built one over there. And then another request came in and another and another. And... By 1968, there were over a thousand playgrounds in the city. That's 50 playgrounds every year between 1947 and 1968. And all of them were overseen by Cornelius and Jacoba and designed by Aldo.
1: Oh, goodness. I'm really enjoying all these requests coming in and so fast. Right? She does so good, like a playground boom.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. A playground boom for the baby boomers.
1: Also, I like the idea that like
2: we're starting our story with her not getting work to now she's getting all the work. I love it. That's
0: right. Yeah. This was such a great instance of community buy in to urban planning, right? Most of the playgrounds were requested from citizens and many of them were designed in specific places that were suggested and designed in response to a specific request by that citizen or group of citizens.
2: So they were almost made to order in a way. Oh, I it's I mean this is great. It's like for the people by the people to give to the people. It's like customization but like for large groups of people.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <It's script>. exactly. <laughs> So, this way of designing was described as bottom up design, right? With it coming from the citizens and children in contrast with a top down method like CM promoted and the overall AUP, then Van Eystren, designed for Amsterdam. And Co was a proponent of the
2: bottom up design. Co was literally turning that concept on its head. Like,
0: yeah, or great. kind of <laughs> working them together, right? You know, like it shouldn't uh, yeah. just come top down, it should also be bottom up.
2: Yeah, sometimes it's not always black and white. There's always a little bit of gray in there.
0: You got to get it shaken, not stirred. Exactly. So in 1952, Coe was made the chief architect of Amsterdam and Van Eysteren became the head of the urban development department. And Van Eysteren became the head of the urban development department. Then in 1958, when Cornelius retired... Ko took his place as the head of the department. The duo was instrumental in the growth and expansion of Amsterdam in the 20th century. The population grew from 7,500,000 in 1930 to almost a million at the end of the 20th century.
1: That lady has the green thumb of urban design. Everything she touches grows. Look at her becoming chief architect. Such a fancy role.
2: Yes. Okay, so this could have been an interesting partnerships episode, like her partnership Mm, with uh, Cornelius and Aldo. I also love that when Cornelius steps down, Ko was the one that takes his place and they didn't just give it. They didn't give this role to like another man, which we've also seen. Right.
0: Yeah. But they were clearly like a working, a good working duo. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she was respected in the department. Yes. As the head of the department, she continued to work on the urban planning expansion of Amsterdam and was closely involved in the design of Bautveitert and oversaw the development for Mollewijk in Amsterdam Noord. She believed that there should be a mix of high-rise, medium-rise, and low-rise buildings to keep variety and
1: avoid monotony. Elementary, my dear Watson. <laughs> well,
0: in the 60s, she got into it a little bit with Siegfried Nasseth he was the architect who designed the balmer project, often referred to just as Balmeer. It's a neighborhood in the southeast of Amsterdam, and the project proposed lots of identical high-rise buildings laid out in a hexagonal grid. It does sound like the project was trying to create green spaces between the buildings from what I looked at and sunlight coming in and all of that, but Ko really didn't like the design. She thought that the human dimension had been lost. And apparently she came up with an alternative design, but there was pressure from politicians and developers and it was built as originally designed by Siegfried. Mm.
1: Well, from briefly looking this project up, I can see her point a little bit. I mean, it's massive, the Mm -hmm. scale of it. Yeah, it does look like an interesting piece of architecture. I don't think I have the same beef with it like she does. I'm okay with it.
2: Well- to her earlier point, though this project it looking at it, it's very monotonous in design. It seems a little redundant in this like shape that just keeps repeating itself. I mean, it doesn't look bad, but maybe it could have been done better, so. yeah,
0: and what's interesting is actually maybe half the buildings it sounds like have been torn down since then and cre- they're creating kind of different uh like lower right re- they're creating more variety in the types of buildings and that kind of Ooh, thing.
2: I would love. To to cheer was with uh Jacoba. Like I could just imagine <laughs> like we're at a pub being like, yeah, turn that down. <laughs> yeah. <sorry. laughs> well, in 1965,
0: Co. retired from the urban development department. During her retirement, she was a lecturer in planning at the University of Amsterdam until she was 70.
1: Yeah, spread that knowledge to future generations, Co.
2: <laughs> as always with our ladies retired but not retired it's still <laughs> working but you know what i wouldn't yes. mind taking a class from her though i feel like i'd enjoy her right? class
1: not at all yeah, yeah i wouldn't mind at all yakuba passed away on november 5th
0: 1988 at 88 years old man
1: what a legacy she left such great work that was beneficial for the communities on so many levels and touched so many lives. Great work, mm-hmm. Jacoba.
2: Yes, her work was so impactful for the city of Amsterdam.
1: So
0: before we leave you, we have to tell you who our Caryatid is for this week's episode. Jessica, can you remind us what a Caryatid is?
2: Yeah. All right, for some background. A Caryatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. In each episode, we'll choose a caryatid a woman who is working today, furthering profession, doing her thing, with her work and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. So, without further ado, this week's karaoke
0: is.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Linda Flasselhold.
2: Wee.
0: Wee. Wee. So, Linda is a curator and program manager on urban planning. She studied architectural history at the University of Amsterdam, and she was the chief curator at the Netherlands Architecture Institute from 2000 to 2011. She's also a core member of Stad Forum, an independent research organization that advises the city of Amsterdam on
2: urban development.
1: That's amazing, Linda. Yes, I can already
2: see the connection to code, too. Yes. In
0: 2011, she founded Studio Linda Flasselroed. According to her website, Linda's goal is to involve a broader group than just insiders in the development of cities, and her approach is interdisciplinary. She facilitates discussion of complex urban issues in stimulating ways, organizes multi-year and shorter programs for cultural institutions, municipalities, and commercial entities.
2: Ooh, very cool.
0: So one of the other reasons that I chose Linda today is that one of her research projects is actually on Jacoba Mulder. She's working on a book about her, which I really cannot wait to read.
1: If this is not a connection, I don't know what is. We may have to revisit this episode once the book comes out. That's really exciting. For sure. Yes. Y'all, how cool would it be
2: if we could interview her? Mm -hmm. Like, Uh, Both ladies sound so cool, and I can't wait to get my hands on this book. I just hope that it's in English. (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Both languages, at least.
0: Right, right. Yes, yes. I'm very excited about it. I, you know, there's not a lot about Jacoba because she was very modest, and so Mm. I'm excited to read more about the research that Linda finds about her.
2: Yeah. Woo!
1: So cool.
0: Okay. Before we say tot scenes, we want to say dankje to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, dankjewel for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Jacoba and Linda, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional
1: ladies. Again, dankjewel. Sheba's podcast is a member of Gable Media Podcast Network, and Gable Media is all about building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G A B L Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've
2: enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your Dutch speakers, your people from Michigan that are Dutch, your playground goers, your people that eat. Uh, Pigs in Blankets and Banquette. Um, (laughs) Tell them to give us five stars on iTunes. Tell them to write us a review and compliment Lizzie's amazing Dutch pronunciations. And help us spread the word to a wider audience. And for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us.
0: We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast.gmail.com leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPod. Until next time, tot ziens! Tot tot ziens. <laughs> Jessica, can you remind us what a karyotet is? Da. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. sorry. Da is Russian. German. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs>